0: Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai.
1: And I'm Molly Keck. And I'm Wizzy Brown.
0: And we are with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension to the Department of Entomology. And this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape.
2: This week we're talking about pollinators. It's about the end of March, beginning of April for most people and that means that hopefully things that didn't die off from snowpocalypse that we had in February are green and hopefully starting to flower a little bit. But I did want to make sure that we comment on something from our previous podcast because it seems like I kept mentioning we don't ever have multiple days of freeze, and then we have. <laughs> do you want to
0: correct? Days. You want to correct that statement? Is that, <laughs> I do. Are we issuing You're a? You doomed us all. We're three episodes in, and we're issuing corrections already.
2: <laughs> I just kept thinking after like day three of freezing weather. Well, this has never happened before, <laughs> and we, I had said over and over again, nothing happens to the insects. It doesn't get cold enough for long enough. And it got cold enough for long enough, but I still don't think much happened to the insects.
0: I agree. Unless there's like some tropical species that we have here that really have no overwintering strategy, but even them, a lot of them uh, have a, you know, a way of living inside some warmer habitats, such as like human homes, your attics, your soffits or whatever. I suspect, yeah, we'll still see a lot of, a lot of the common insects that we see year year after year.
2: I don't think it's going to affect anything. I always say if Alaska has insects, I think Wizzy said this last time. And Canada has insects, then we're going to have insects in Texas.
0: Yeah. Agreed.
2: Now that we've, we've covered that (laughs) and apologize for saying that incorrectly over and over again, it's pollinator season for most people. Hopefully I know that some people still will get some random late freezes or cold dips um, in the panhandle and maybe North Texas. But for the majority of Texas, we've warmed up enough where our evenings are staying warm enough through the night so that our flowers are starting to bloom and really take off. And hopefully everyone's getting some nice, good rain. And and it seems like this is the time of year, as you start to see your flowering plants, you notice some butterflies or some bees flying around. Everyone starts thinking about pollinators. And for most people, I think when you think of a pollinator, you immediately think of either a butterfly or more likely a honeybee. And I appreciate my honeybees as a beekeeper, but most people don't appreciate them so much as pollinators. So most people that know don't appreciate them as pollinators for your landscape because there's a lot of other native pollinators i thought it would be um kind of interesting to start out and talk about what some of our more underappreciated pollinators are or the ones that we tend to like to see in our landscape as entomologists and i will start out by saying one of my favorite ones to see is a a bee fly which is like a uh, It's like seeing Sasquatch, I feel like, because you don't hardly ever see them, but they're super, super buzzy and fast. And if you know what you're looking for, then you'll notice them zipping They fly like a fly because they are a fly instead of like a bee, although they look like a bee. So I always get really excited when I see those guys on my page. I
0: can't help but feel like next week you're going to see, everyone's going to see a bunch of Sasquatches everywhere and you have to issue another statement correction.
1: (laughs) You know, I I also like the the bee flies or hover flies or surfed flies or whatever you want to call them. I did um, my undergraduate degree. That was what I did my senior project on. I had to count and categorize and identify all these different surfed flies for one of the professors at Ohio State. And so I... I got to really appreciate them and all of their diversity, but th- I think they're cool. And a lot of people don't know even what they're looking at because they just assume that they're a bee or a wasp since they look so similar. Mm-hmm. The other fly that I really like seeing on um, my flowers that help pollinate are the tachinid flies because people don't think about those actually being pollinators at all. They're like, Ooh, they're carrion and they're gross. And I'm just like, Oh, look, it's so cute. <laughs> what's
0: what's particularly interesting about those uh flies that i appreciate from a pest management standpoint is that their larvae are highly predacious uh and so they're kind of like these semi-transparent gross looking larvae that kind of crawl around and look for soft-bodied insects and eat them up so not only are they pollinators as adults but as immatures, they are excellent predators Uh, but i think i think my favorite uh, it, it, you know, I saw it for the first time when I was in Texas and it's a, you know, referred to by a few different names, a hawk moth, a sphinx moth or a hummingbird moth. And as that latter name suggests, it's, it's because they behave a lot like hummingbirds, but it's actually a moth. And they, you know, they, they beat their wings very rapidly. They'll fly around in a very friendly fashion. You know, I had this one fly right by my head. It sounded like a hummingbird and it hovers in front and of are daytime flyers. Yeah. Yeah, so they're really—I mean, they're—and they're just beautiful, really neat. And and a little known, uh, you know, tidbit is that their immatures are the much hated uh, tobacco or tomato hornworms, or at least that's you know an example of them. And so these, uh, as caterpillars, they cause catastrophic damage in the home garden. This is you know one of those examples I give of you know a pest in one context is a beautiful thing in another, you know? So if we, if we were too effective at managing all our pests, we'd also have no butterflies and moths because all their immature stages eat our plants.
2: The pest is in the situation, right?
0: Right. Absolutely.
2: Tailing on your thing about the surfeit flies. I also like them because they, they're like little um, drones that just like little robots as they look at you, you know? And I've always noticed that they tend to be the very first ones that uh, come to something that's flowering. And usually it's like my herbs that I've let bolt. Right. And they're all over it, but they they seem to be the first things out pollinating when it starts to warm up. So I, I appreciate them for being so industrious, I guess in that way. <laughs> so the other thing that people are always asking us is what should I plant to bring pollinators in? And one thing that I would just say about that first is that if pollinators aren't coming to your garden, uh, there, maybe they have a happy home someplace else. So I, you know, people always think, oh, my neighbor did something and they sprayed too many pesticides and they killed off all the bumblebees and everything. And, you know, some years you just have them and some years you don't last year, I didn't see many bumblebees, but the year prior, they were all over the place in my garden and I didn't do anything, I think to have hurt them. So I think that, um, sometimes people assume the worst and it's just, it's nature. And sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. But what are some plants that you guys have noticed in your landscape that tend to uh, bring in a lot of pollinators? Well,
1: it really depends on what ones you're looking for. Because if you think about the different pollinators, because we have the butterflies and the moths, we have the honeybees, but we also have a lot of the solitary bees. There are also flies and beetles. Those are all going to need different things because they have different mouth parts to access what they need with the flower so me being a beetle nut, I, I like planting things like sunflowers or um, zinnia or um, coneflowers that have that open ray shaped flower. So I can see the beetles that are coming in on them. As far as like a general nectar source, I do a lot of Greg's blue mist flower. I have a huge patch of it and tons of bees, butterflies, whatever. I,
2: I don't know if you've seen this picture, Wizzy, but, um, you, many of us remember Mark Maggie, who's now passed, but he was an entomologist in um, Fort Stockton, and he was a butterfly nut. He loved to do butterfly gardening, and he had a gorgeous garden in Fort Stockton, which I, in my, I've never been there, but in my mind, I think of this as like an arid desert. And he took a picture of the blue mist flower, but I think it was the white mist. I'm not sure if it was the blue or the white uh, variety. And in that one picture you can count like 12 different species of butterflies. Wow. There's, it's, it's amazing. So if, we, if they can grow it in Fort Stockton, I feel like you can grow it anywhere. And I grew it this year for the first time and it, it takes over. I mean, it goes kind of haywire. So you have to have a good space for it. But it was, it was bonkers how many butterflies came to it. And there were other things that came, but you just notice the butterflies because you just see that, you know, very exaggerated movement of the wings. It was, I'm, I mean, it blew my mind. It was so crazy.
0: This was the first year that uh, my wife and I uh, actually, you know, went out and bought a bunch of plants and put in our garden. You know, we've only had a garden for like, I don't know, three years. And this is the first time we've actually been like, let's buy some plants and put it in there, you know. And so we made a new garden bed. And um, of all the plants we put in there, the the giant salvia. um Wow. I mean, was always super busy with a lot of bumblebees, which, you know, I love as well, because just like giant pandas, yes. flying pandas, <laughs> there's like miniature big flying, flying
1: pandas. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's a pocket panda. Yeah,
0: it's a pocket panda. You can take it with you anywhere. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: so yeah, that's, uh, that was like our, our anecdotal evidence, but the question that I think a lot of us receive a lot is like, what should we plant in our landscape? And at least in my, you know, in my research, there's like very little data uh, actually collected on pollinator-friendly plants. And so that's where, you know, we had started this um, Pollinator Citizen Scientist Project a couple of years ago and wrapped up our, our second year's worth of data last this last December. You know, anyone can get involved in, decided we're going to launch it back up again. I think it's around April time. But we had over... 200 volunteers uh, all across Texas, um, some in Oklahoma, other neighboring states that were contributing to this. We had like a total of about 19,000 contributions to this project in 2020 alone. You know, we're asking everyone to observe their plants for 60 seconds and count different types of pollinators uh, and to start to help generate some data around what plants are actually attractive in, in the landscape. This is like very preliminary and I want to caution people because uh, we still need to filter out some things, and so you know, don't. This isn't the Bible on on pollinator gardens, but like, I don't know. I kind of want to talk about maybe like the top five, maybe that that we found. Oh yes. Um, one is Antigonon leptopus, also known as coral vine, <laughs> coralita, or bee bush. Yeah. So it was apparently super attractive to honeybees uh, on average was finding probably about 10, you know, people are counting 10 uh, honeybees within 60 seconds in a two by two foot area of that particular plant. So relatively high numbers. And they're also seeing bumblebees on there too, in in decent quantities.
1: And that's another one that will take over a large
2: area. I think that's probably why they're seeing so many honeybees because it, at least in San Antonio, it generally will bloom its brains out when everything else is kind of dying off and withering away in Mm. July and August in the dog days of summer. And so that's what's available, but also honeybees love giant amounts of the same thing. So that's why they love wildflowers in the early springtime, because there's tons of them in one field and they just recruit to the same thing. And so the coral vine can be giant and they just keep, they just keep sending that message back to the hive. Everyone go back there.
1: So if you plant coral vine, Get strong supports. You'll need it. Mm -hmm.
0: Will a plant like this take over your garden then? Is this something you don't necessarily want to plant in your garden from that perspective?
1: Usually people that I see around here, they put it along a fence line. So the fence is supporting it and then it kind of spreads out over the fence and makes that look nicer. Uh,
0: Okay. So our next uh, most popular pollinator visitor uh, was crimson bee balm or scarlet bee balm, scarlet monarda. Uh, or also known as bergamot. And that one also was uh, very attractive pollinators in this case, primarily to just other bees. So it wasn't, you know, our categories were uh, honeybees, bumblebees, and Lepidoptera, which are your butterflies, moths. So it wasn't, it didn't seem like those were visiting this plant uh, a lot. It was more of this other bee category. So it could have been smaller sweat bees. It could have been um, basically other, it could have been like carpenter bees or things like that.
1: Digger bees. There's a longhorn bees. There's tons of them. So if you want native bees, that might be a good thing to plant.
0: All right. And let's see. Another one is like a, uh, smaller shrub, I guess, a lilac chaste tree. It's considered deciduous shrub.
2: That is a fabulous plant for, um, pollinators and all sorts. I see bees, bumblebees, native bees, um, butterflies and moths skippers on the same plant at the same time. But that is a very invasive plant, incredibly invasive. And we've actually taken it off of the Texas superstar list. Um, Uh, Because it's so incredibly invasive, but it's fast growing. It's beautiful. I have a couple in my landscape. So, a lot of people have them or they moved into a place where they're already existing. And if you want to, what you do is you, if it takes a chainsaw, you buzz it down to the ground and you keep it more bush like than allowing it to grow really big. And you just want to keep cutting it, make it manageable and small so you can cut it before it seeds. And that way it doesn't grow. So, anybody who goes to like, Lake Buchanan in Burnett, you can just go to places on that lake where nobody is. And there are the vitex everywhere along the coastline because a bird pooped it out or a seed came up on the shore. It's very, very invasive. Wow. So anyone listening that doesn't like native plants, you're not going to like that one.
0: There you go. That's why all these plants, it's important to look at it in the context of, is it invasive? You know, what are the maintenance requirements? How much irrigation does it need? Uh, how well does it handle snow and freeze cover for a week? You know, so all these things are are relevant bits of information. Absolutely.
1: Not very well if it's in my landscape.
0: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and then some other, like a few more like honorable mentions, uh, you know, Salvia obviously was, was up in that top 10 as well. So we had Salvia Lucantha and Salvia Farinaceae, which we were discussing earlier, I guess is considered a native.
2: That is the story that I've always heard. It's it's commonly called the Henry Doolberg um, Salvia. The story that I have heard is that it was found in um, a cemetery and the closest uh, gravestone next to it was Henry Dulberg. And I also believe that there is a white variety that is named after his wife because it was found by her gravestone. And I wouldn't quote me on that, but that's what I've heard multiple times. But a lot of people really, really love that one because it is considered a true Texas native. And a lot of like native plants can look really weedy and leggy and people don't like them in the landscape. But this is one that that actually holds up pretty well, if, as long as you keep cutting it down. And I think most people, if you you've probably seen this in the landscape and not even realized that's what it was.
0: And there was a couple more. One is uh, Allium tuberosum, which is like garlic chives. So if you have a vegetable garden, uh, you make sure you'd include some of that, um, you know, garlic in there, then, then that's considered um, what's considered in our top 10 for, for pollinator density or attractiveness. And last one was a uh, tea bush or pyramid bush. Uh, that again, also made it in that top 10 out of our, you know, we had um, a few, I think it was like 350-ish plants that we had identified down to species um, in this. So of those, like those 10 across all regions appeared to be the kind of the most attractive to pollinators.
2: I believe it with the herbs. I always tell people, let your herbs bolt because you will draw in Surfed flies. So you're drawing in a pollinator plus a predator. I mean, that's like the, the one thing that you could do to help your landscape with predators and pollinators is just let your herbs bolt, which is counterintuitive because you don't want to let them flower because then you don't get the leaves, but let them bolt. And the other thing I, I always tell people is plant a bunch of broccoli and let it flower. Don't, don't pull it because it will bloom in December, January when nothing else is blooming. And then whatever pollinators are still active can find that as a food source.
1: But prepare to have harlequin bugs.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they do like it when that stuff gets old. So one thing that I always tell people about what to plant is with the exception of like bottle brush that you mentioned and maybe a couple others, I always say that insects can very fairly well see all wavelengths of light, but they tend to see white, yellow and blue purples. Better than other wavelengths. So if you can't remember any specific thing, just remember those colors. And when you go to the nursery, if there's insects pollinating it, if there's pollinators on it, then those are the ones that you want to pick up. But if you if you go through your list, or fun, I bet you could color code them, and most of them would probably fall in one of those three categories. And also, most wildflowers or weeds flower in that that same color too. So I think it makes sense to, to look for flowers. In one of those three categories,
0: we do have. Uh, I mean, we have all the color data associated with all those plants. So, you know, once once we get to analyze that as well, yeah, that that might be valuable for sure.
2: I wonder if you're going to say, actually, you're incredibly wrong and it's pinks and reds that they prefer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Next week, you're going to have to issue another corrective statement. Yeah. (laughs) I'm
2: going to have to correct thousands upon thousands of people that I have told that to over my lifetime.
0: (laughs) Sorry, everyone, but green and fuchsia apparently are the most attractive flower colors. (laughs) It's polka dots. (laughs) Polka dots. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So other than planting plants, there's probably three ways that you can encouraged pollinators in your landscape. And number one is plant stuff that blooms so that they come after it. Right. But what are, um, what are some other things that y'all could recommend that people can do to try to encourage their pollinators?
1: Usually when I talk to people, the, the blooming thing, I always try to tell them have a variety of colors, plant things in clumps. That way you have a larger area for those insects to find. Uh, plant a variety of flower shapes, and then making sure that you have something blooming for all seasons. That way you can kind of continue on having that food source for whatever insects are there. But I also will tell them to provide shelter for the insects. And that could be either in natural ways. Um, That requires you to know a little bit of biology of your insects that you're trying to attract. But a lot of the native solitary bees are going to be um, ones that burrow into the ground. So you want a bare patch of ground and kind of sandy, loose soil. So don't cover everything with grass or mulch or plants or whatever. Have some of those bare patches in sunnier areas. Or um, there are other bees, a lot of the early kind of pollinators that do the fruit trees and stuff like that. They are going to create their little nurseries in um, like tunnels, like either pithy stems or in old beetle burrows or, um,
2: or in the holes where that your screws make in your trimmer for your bushes. I went out to my garage and they had, yes. Mason B- I mean, yes. it could not be that deep, but I was like, who caulked <laughs> the holes here for the screws. And then I realized it wasn't caulk. It was some little <laughs> bee did it. And I have bee houses everywhere and they chose that instead. So I
1: aren't they funny? Well, that's always the case, right? It's like, here's this nice little place that I provided for you. Go find someplace else. It's just, it's like your kid. You tell yeah. them to do something and they do the exact thing.
0: It reminds me of my toddler. Like here are your toys. Stay away out of our kitchen cabinets. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what size holes? What size hole? Like if someone's going to make their own out of a block of wood, what are the different size holes that, that are recommended?
1: It really depends on what type of bees they're trying to attract because, and what season. So usually it goes from anywhere from like an eighth of an inch to what, like three eighths of an inch or something like that. They, they can definitely Google that. Um, But you want it to be a certain depth because the females are going to be laid at the back. So that's where they put their fertilized eggs because that's a more protected location. And they lay the males towards the front so if you don't make it long enough you're not going to have females for the next year you're only going to have males coming out which they're still going to go to the flowers but they're not going to reproduce and produce more bees for the following season
2: so i had always heard that they'll lay their first eggs kind of in the front of the hole and crawl over that to lay others so that the younger ones are going to hatch first and come out maybe that's not true. Or do the females take longer to develop than the males do? So they're not, they're not stuck in there, you know, and they can't get out because they can't push the boys out of their way.
1: Right. I think it might take longer for the females to develop, but the males, not only are they, sorry, Irfan, they're more expendable (laughs) than the females are. They also having the advantage of when they hatch out first before the females, then they're kind of hovering and they're ready there to get the females when they come out and mate with them. And start the process all over again. Okay. So they kind of want the males to come out before they want the females.
0: I appreciate that. That you understand how much I relate to male bees and that what you were saying could have been insensitive to the, to the male here. Uh, I do appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Doing my best. <laughs> I guess the answer is give them all different sizes are fun. Give them, give there them a variety. Cause you never know who's going to come to it. A big fat carpenter bee or a little teeny tiny digger bee. Yeah.
0: And then I know like um, to promote them in the landscape from a uh, like a pesticide perspective, right? It's like being cautious about what you spray. There's a lot of broad spectrum insecticides. If you read a label and it has a very long list of insects, um, then I I usually caution that's probably a broad spectrum may most likely going to have a negative impact on beneficials, including pollinators as well. A classic example of something that's used a lot in the landscape is uh, the active ingredient carbaryl, so that's C A R B, carb, R A R A R R Y L. Yes, um, that one is very broad spectrum.
2: I say that differently. I've always pronounced it carbaryl. Carbaryl. Uh, maybe that's the Canadian <laughs> maybe accent. Maybe that's the
0: airfon accent. <laughs> 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 but even um, you know, there's a lot of insecticide drenches as well. So one that's uh, imidacloprid, for example, that uh, belongs to this class of insecticides known as neonicotinoids, which has been, um, uh, under the heat a lot in, in the last four to five years for potential negative impact on pollinators. And there's been some studies have been showing that, um, these neonicotinoids, they act like nicotine. It is a new nicotine neonicotinoid, uh, and has some addictive properties, which are like bees that like, if they get some of it, they almost want to come back. So in one way, it's a way of getting them back in your garden, getting them hooked, uh, but it is narcotics, Twitchy. so you're then gonna be impacting their health, well-being, and, and and their communities, which you don't want to do. So uh, you know, you just want to be cautious about what you spray, uh, the frequency you spray, the timing, right? So both pollinators are going to be yes. most active, usually in the mornings, early, early, you know, noon and early afternoon. Um, so usually we're, you know, suggesting spraying later in the afternoon, or afternoon or evening, so that that pesticide has some time to sit and and uh, kind of break down before they visit again the next morning.
2: Yeah, I always say if you can get out there at dusk where it's still a little bit bright, um, they're gone. They've gone home for the night. They're not. Poly- Pollinating in the evening, and so then you get. Of course, there are moths and other things that might be nocturnal pollinators, but by and large, most of them have gone to bed. So you have all night long for that stuff to dry. And then the other thing I always tell people, and and you might say I'm wrong on this, and I might have to have another disclaimer, is that my argument is if your plant is blooming it's healthy. They generally, and there are exceptions to the rule I know, but if a plant is blooming, it's healthy and it's not stressed. Some plants, when they get stressed, tend to bloom their brains out. But if your plant's blooming, look at the plant and ask yourself, why are you applying a pesticide? Because it's probably doing, it's doing what it's supposed to do because it's a huge investment to produce the bloom, right? So whatever's feeding on it really isn't harming it that much. Am I right in saying that or
0: I, I think that's a, um, a good general rule. Uh, I, yeah, <laughs> I think it's a good general rule. Okay. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, you know, since I deal, um, mainly with like the, the pest management side of things, I don't know the plants and plant response quite as well as, as say like a horticulturalist or, or even you two, I mean, I'd, I'd refer to you for, for that answer.
2: What, I mean, is that kind of a belief that you think was there's like, you know, bougainvilleas and esperanzas that will tend to bloom when they get stressed, I think, or in a drought situation. But I, I tend to think that if it's healthy, it's blooming. It's not stressed out. Why are you putting a pesticide on it?
1: Well, I I'm kind of of the mind of why do people use so many pesticides anyway? Right. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those, it, let nature be nature. It, it's like, there's, There's an ecosystem in your yard and things are going to kind of balance out. And if you're going to manage things, you know, try to avoid using pesticides, do it with high pressure water sprays or vacuums or something like that. Um, And then when you do choose pesticides, try to target them as much as you can, either to the insect or the location. That way you can protect, you know, beneficials that may be predators or parasites or, Um, even the pollinators. So it's kind of narrowing things down as much, but, you know, let, let things kind of do their thing. I think we fiddle with stuff a lot because we feel like we need to, and that just makes it worse.
0: I can, I can appreciate that because, you know, there was um, a few times that plants in our garden looked like they were getting overrun with insects and I can't tell you how many times my wife kept telling me to you know bring some of that good stuff home from work and just spray it you know (laughs) and I was like I'm not gonna do that because I know exactly what's here what the density is and why you know it doesn't need to you know I I think once you learn more about these insects their interactions uh, their impact in their environment and the impact of the insecticides you start to gain an appreciation for even what we consider to be pest insects, right? Like pests are, are, you know, the term we use for insects in an undesirable location. But if you learn to appreciate that, then it might not be so undesirable, right? There's still, if if I get a whole lot of uh, aphids on, on, on a plant that I don't like, you know, I can go through, like you said, high pressure wash or hand crush them or, or just shake that plant, shake them off. I know they'll decrease their survival and just, you know, do that on a frequent basis in a home garden setting, which is very different than, what I'd advise for a grower right. that that's their livelihood. Uh, and so, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think that's kind of our hope with this, this podcast is that people will grow an appreciation for these insects in their garden. and can make better management decisions
2: yes and now's the time of year to look outside and see those guys moving around i always say that um and this is a good topic to get you into liking insects because pollinators are like the gateway bug for people they get you in they help you appreciate and realize they're not so ucky and yucky and gross yeah just to kind of summarize if you want pollinators in your garden all the stuff that we talked about kind of falls into three things plant plants that they like to feed on give them some shelter and (laughs) Reduce your pesticide use.
0: Perfect. I think that's some great advice.
2: Thanks for joining us. I hope you learned a little bit about pollinators and appreciate insects a little bit more. And, and tune in next time for our next riveting topic. Signing off from the Bugs by the Yard podcast from Texas A&M AgriLife Extension and the Entomology Department. I'm Molly Keck. I'm Wesley Brown. I'm
0: Airfon Buffay.